Uh, This psalm, Psalm 139, is written by David, King David. Remember, he is a poet. He's a warrior, a soldier. He killed dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of men in his career as a soldier. Uh, He's a king. He's a musician. Uh, And he's also a guy who was accused of many things falsely. So he lived much of his life under Uh, false accusations. And so this prayer, uh, this psalm is him crying out to God, vindicate me, God. Vindicate me. And you'll see that uh, as we read. So um, let's, let's read this. Let's turn our attention to God's word. This is Psalm chapter 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would search our hearts, 
that your word and your spirit would penetrate our hard hearts and expose us. Lord, would, the tr- would you make it so that your truth uh, is, is um, inescapable? Would you drive away distractions? And Lord, would you show us your grace? Help us, Holy Spirit, to taste your grace. Give me uh, words to speak with clarity and passion. And Lord, give us all ears to hear uh, what you would have us hear this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'll never forget uh, one of the first times I played hide-and-go-seek with Camilla, uh, my daughter. At the time, she was like two and a half years old. And I'll just say this. If you ever want to feel really smart and like you've come a long way in life, play hide-and-go-seek with a two-year-old, and you'll be like, all right. You know, I've learned a lot. So, so I'm explaining to her how it works. You know, you go hide, I'm going to count, and then I'll come look for you. And so I, I leave the room, I close the door, and I count, you know, count to ten. Ready or not, here I come. And I walk in the room, and Camilla's got her head tucked under the bed. <laughs> but her whole body, of course, is sticking out. And so I, I say, oh, Camilla, I can see you, sweet girl. Um, and I explained to her, well, just because you, know, you can't see me doesn't mean I can't see you. You've got to get your whole body under the bed. So I say, let's try again. I'll go back out and count to 10. Ready or not, here I come. I go back in, and this time, Camilla, at the last second, has decided she wants to change spots. You know, we've all been there. I've got to find a better spot. And she's scurrying across the room. Um, needless to say, two-year-olds are not very good at hide-and-seek. they're just bad at hiding. At one time or another, all of us will hide from God. We, We will try to pretend like we're okay. We'll try to cover our sins. But just like Camilla, it, it does not work. We are bad at hiding. And so as we look at our passage today, I want to answer this question. Why should you stop hiding from God? And you'll see there in your outline three reasons. First, God knows the real you. God sees your sin and God loves to show mercy. Let's look at this first point. God knows the real you. So as, we, as I said, David has been falsely accused, and so he cries out to God, the only one who truly knows his heart. Look at this in verses 1 through 4. Uh, notice how he keeps saying, you, you God, you know me. He says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. In the midst of these accusations, David turns to God, the only one who who can really see his heart, who really knows his heart, 
to ground himself. See, David's reputation is so thoroughly destroyed that he is comforted by the reality that no matter what his enemies say about him, God knows the truth. God knows the real David. See, God looks into your heart. And he sees your thoughts, your motivations and desires. There is nothing hidden from his sight. In fact, he is the only one who truly knows you. If your reputation has ever been damaged, you've ever been uh, gossiped against, slandered, or if you find yourself just hungry for the approval of other humans, this is deeply comforting. It means that it's not what others think about you that matters. It's God's opinion that we should care about. Let's take a minute just to put ourselves in, in David's shoes. If you've read 1 Samuel, you, you've read a little bit about what he had to endure. Uh, he's accused by King Saul of treason. And he's labeled an enemy of the state, even though he's actually the rightful heir to the throne. He's the rightful king, and yet this, the propaganda that's coming from the top down, you know, you imagine you're at work, and, and the narrative is, you're the bad guy, and you, there's nothing you can do about it. And so David has been labeled an enemy of the state, and he's being hunted. He lives in the wilderness. He's being hunted down. And so he's wandering In the wilderness, falsely labeled as an enemy, not only of the state, but as an enemy of God. His reputation is one who who, uh, God is an enemy of. And we don't know when the psalm was written, but look at these similarities we see uh, in in verses 19 through 22. There's this, um, the first half of this psalm is kind of like happy and and fun and, and makes you feel warm. The second half, you notice this switch, this shift where it kind of gets darker. You know, for 18 verses, David's meditating on God's knowledge of him, and he switches gears completely there in verse 19. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Apparently, part of the accusations against David are that he is rebelling against God. That he is one of these bloodthirsty men. And so he refutes this false accusation And he distances himself from the enemies of God. He says, I'm not part of these these God-hating and bloodthirsty men. You see, there's there's two sort of realities, two uh, ideas that you need to understand. The first is reputation. Reputation. Reputation is what people think of you what people think of you. And then there is reality, which is who God knows you to be. David's reputation is ruined. His, the popular opinion is that he is a bad guy. 
And so he goes to God to steady himself in this reality that God truly knows him. Uh, One of my favorite kids' books captures this idea really well. Um, It's by an author, Max Licato. Probably some of you parents know know this guy. Uh, He's got a book uh, about this this little wooden guy. His name is Punchinello. And uh, Punchinello lives in a town of Wemmicks. There's these little wooden people. And they're all, they've all been carved by the woodcarver. His name is Eli. And what's sad about this little town is that all these wooden puppets, they walk around and they carry with them a box of gray dots and a box of gold stars. And so if you do something that's really good, you're athletic or you're smart or you make a, correct, uh, a great career move, uh, you get a gold star from everybody. So you're walking around, you've got gold stars all over you. If you do something bad, you get a gray dot. So it's like a little bit of social shame. And Punchinello, he, he failed a lot. You know, he, he, when he tried to do something athletic, he would trip and fall. When he tried to say something smart, he would uh, fumble his words. And so he's got a lot of dots. And he just walks around with his head hanging low. But one day he meets Lucia. And Lucia has, has no dots or stars. And he's like, what? what's going on with this Lucia girl? She's, she's just sort of pure. And so she, he asked her, and she says, you know, I, I visit Eli every day. I go to the woodcarver every day. <clears throat> so Punchinello finally decides he's going to go see Eli. And this, I'll just read from you uh, how this plays out. <clears throat> Punchinello walked up the narrow path and stepped into Eli's shop. His eyes grew big. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on tiptoe to see the top of the workbench. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. Then he heard his name. Punchinello? The voice was deep and strong. How good to see you. Come, let me have a look at you. Punchinello looked up. You know my name? Of course, I made you. Eli picked him up and set him on the bench. Looks like you've been given some bad marks, said the maker. I didn't mean to, Eli. I I, I tried really hard. Punchinello, I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? No, you shouldn't either. What they think doesn't matter. All that matters is what I think. Punchinello laughed. I'm not very talented and my paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met Lucia, said Punchinello. Why don't the stickers stay on her? The maker spoke softly. Because she has decided that what I think is more important than what others think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. I'm not sure I understand. 
Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time. For now, come to, come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as Punchinello was leaving, you are special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. Are you tired of messing around with gray dots and gold stars? I am. How, how beautiful would it be to go every day like Punchinello and to be able to navigate daily life without constantly fearing what other people think about you? Christian, do not hope in your reputation. It is an illusion. Your reputation is an illusion. And it will not last. Instead, rest in this reality, the reality that God knows you. It's his opinion of you that matters, not man's. There's also a fearful side of this reality. And this brings us to point two. This reality that God knows us, it means that God sees your sin. You see, because we all know there is darkness inside of us, we're committed to hiding, to covering, to pretending. Since, since the very first sins were committed, this has been ingrained in us as humans. And David actually explores this option in verses 7 through 12. He explores this, the option of hiding. Listen to what he says. He's asking this rhetorical question, where, where can I go? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's where dead people are, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, that's a poetic way of saying if I go really far east or really far west, you're going to be there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. <laughs> he, he kind of gives up on getting away from God and he thinks, well, maybe, maybe if I turn off the lights, he won't be able to see. He says, no, God has night vision. He doesn't need light to see. Have we really um, explored all our options, though? Maybe there's somewhere else that we could go to hide from God. Somewhere we can get away from him. Maybe space. Is God there? Ah, uh, Yes, he is there. Maybe if we lock the doors and turn out the lights, shut the blinds, turn on incognito mode. No, God is there. You go east, you go west, you go to heaven, you go to hell. God is there. 
Not even death, David says. Not even death will separate him from God. Everything is seen by God. Everything done under cover of darkness, God is there as an eyewitness. You know, the, the human race is just full of, of a long history of hiders. We've been hiding since Adam and Eve. Uh, we're learning in Sunday school about Jonah, right? God says, hey, I want to send you to Nineveh. He's, boom, taken off in the other direction. It didn't work for him, if you know his story. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they hid from their creator after they sinned. They realized they were naked. And what did they do? They, they started sewing fig leaves together. And they hid in the bushes. And, and I really... I want to take them and just sit them down and say, okay, explain this to me. So God just created you with his hands. He made you from dust. And now you realize you're naked and you're worried that he's going to see you. Like you realize that he formed you. He made you. He knows what you look like. You're, you're hiding from the guy who created you. Who knows you. He knows your nakedness better than you do. See, but, but we do this too. We're like Adam and Eve. We, we hide. Look at verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. It says, not not only did you make me, but you have established every step that I take in this life. He knows who we are and he knows what we have done and what we will do. And yet we hide. You know, something hit me uh, for the first time when I became a parent. It's weird that it took me that long to figure it out. But, um, you know, after seeing Camilla be born, seeing her come into the world and uh, be nursed by her mom, having to change her diaper, I finally realized my mom changed my diapers. My mom gave birth to me. And and I realized, you know, my parents actually know me in a lot of ways better than I know myself. There's many times in life when I said, Mom, Dad, you wouldn't believe, um, I just found out this about myself. I really like X, or I really don't like this. And they're like, yeah, we we know that. We've known that for, for 15 years, for 20 years. But there's this thing that happens with your, I remember with my parents, where I, I would pretend like I was okay, like I was brave, like I wasn't scared. I was embarrassed, ashamed if they knew that I was afraid or I failed. And I, and I remember thinking, why, why am I pretending to hide from my parents? They, they brought me into this world. They changed my diapers. Why would I hide from them? You know, God knows you far better than your parents know you. 
He knows you far better than you know yourself. How can you know if you're hiding from God? What are some tests, some sort of practical um, gauges of whether or not you're hiding from God? Well, first, I think a big one, are you, are you covering your sins from others? Is there secret sins in your life which you, you have promised yourself you will never let another human, not even a trusted human, into that section of your life? Then you're hiding from God. Confess. Confess your sins to God and to a trusted brother or sister. How else can you know? If it's hard to pray, you might be hiding from God. If it's, if it's hard to let other humans actually see your heart, you might be hiding from God. If you have to constantly distract yourself, you might be hiding from God. You know, sadly, the church... The church pews are a great place to hide from God because you get, this, you get this reputation of being close to God while actually being far from him. You're basically using church as a cover, as a camouflage. Look, if you are hiding from God, you are not the first one to try this. Every human since Adam and Eve have hidden from God. But you need to know that it does not work. It does not work. You see, this psalm, it it exposes the reality of God's all-seeing eye. It exposes the, the futility of hiding from our God who sees everything. Psalm or sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so here we are, each of us, totally exposed, completely exposed before the eyes of God. That is the state all of, all of us are in. And the question is, the big question is, what is God going to do? What is God going to do? How will he respond when he sees our sin, past, present, and future laid out before him? And this is where I get to bring good news God loves to show mercy. You know, in order to fully understand this psalm, we need to turn to the New Testament. We need to see, to understand it in in the storyline of Scripture. Let's, um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll look at verses 10 through 13 just briefly. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And this is Jesus. This is a gospel. And so Jesus is interacting with some of the Pharisees. We'll read what he says. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, 
Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this passage, we learn how God responds, how Jesus responds to our sins being exposed. Like a good doctor, he moves towards us. Not with gray dots or gold stars, but with healing and mercy. See, why why do we hide our sins? Why do we cover? Why are we so committed to living like this? Well, there's a a lot of reasons. Um, we, We think that if he sees us, he will condemn us. We think if God knew, if he knew what I had done, he would not forgive me. He wouldn't be able to handle the depth of the evil. Or we, we think that there's, there's no solution to the problem. Why do we hide? Because we think there's no fix. There's no solution to our sin and our shame. But Jesus, the great doctor, says he did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. You know, this, is, this doctor metaphor is so helpful. You know, what do you do when you go to a doctor, or rather, why do you go to the doctor? Well, because you're sick. And what happens when you go? Uh, you, they put you in the waiting room and with a, uh, a clipboard, and you get to fill out what's probably the most humiliating paperwork, which is everything that's wrong with you. You know, and so you're just going down the list, and you're just kind of wondering, like, you know, how honest do I need to be to get some good care today? Um, but, you, I mean, we've got to check all the boxes. We let the doctor knows everything. Yep, I've got, you know, that problem. I've got GI issues. I've got acne. I've got this. I've got that. We're just going down, checking everything, because we want to be healed. We think whatever, whatever he needs to know to make me better. What sins from your past you need to bring to God? What suffering? What suffering from your past do you need to bring to God? It's so easy to create a barrier between us and our past and to think, you know, that, that happened back then. Maybe I wasn't a Christian. Maybe I, I was a backsliding Christian, but that's not me anymore. I'm not the same person I used to be. It's true that our past does not define us, but the sins of your past will weigh you down. The suffering of your past will weigh you down. David, in a different psalm, he describes this. He says, when I kept silence, when I kept these things to myself, my bones wasted away. 
And so in, instead of being weighed down by past sins and suffering, God calls us to confess and to be free. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. You know, this, this passage is famous uh, in part because it's often used to make the biblical case against abortion. And, and rightly so. You know, in verse 13, he says, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You see, God, God knows us personally before we're born. Because we are persons before we're born. One, one in four women in the United States, and this includes the church, will have an abortion at some point in their life. One in four. And you may be one of these. You may be one of these women. And this is sad. It's sad for the, for the women and the men. It's sad for the babies who we will never meet. But if that's you, you need to know that God has seen your abortion. He has seen your abortion, and Christ has died for that too. He has paid the price for that too. In Christ, you don't have to hide. You are forgiven. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. You see, there is nothing in your past that God cannot forgive. Whether it's the sins of your youth, things that you like to pretend never happened, things that you put in that category of, that, that's the old Brandon. That's the old me. That's not, that's not the real me. Don't hide from God anymore. Bring it all to him, everything. Bring it all to him. Like David does, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And receive his mercy, his healing. <clears throat> I want to end with, with this. It's just a story about answering this question, how great is God's mercy? If you're like me, you, you come and you say, okay, if I'm going to bring this to God, if I'm going to let myself be exposed to this depth, I need to really believe that God's mercy is more. And so this, this is a story of God's mercy through a, through a human. Maybe you're familiar with Corey Ten Boom. Uh, she was a watchmaker uh, in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, during World War II, and she was a Christian. And she helped to hide Jews in her watch shop. Uh, she eventually was caught and sent to a Nazi concentration camp, Ravensbrück. And there she was, like everyone else, tortured and and nearly died. Her sister would die there. Her sister Betsy dies. But she survived. And she went on to um, tell her story. She went on to travel and tell her story and, and share the gospel. But Corey was, was put to the test. Uh, in 1947, she, this is after the war, she was speaking in a church in Germany. 
Can you imagine? At the close of the service, a, a, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward. And this man she immediately recognized. She froze. She, she knew him well. He had been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrook. One who had, had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. And of course, all these memories just come flooding back to her. And she, she recounts this moment. Listen to what she says. And now he, this, this man, was pushing his hand out to shake mine. Insane. A fine message. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She goes on, and I, who spoke so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remember him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. The man went on. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly waiting. I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever done. For I had to do it, I knew that. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart. Because of what Christ did on the cross. His forgiveness. God's forgiveness is far greater than Corey's. He waits for you with arms wide open. Like Eli the woodcarver. Saying, every, I've been waiting every day for you to come visit me. So Christian, do not hide anymore. Come to the one who knows everything you ever did and be forgiven. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it is almost hard to imagine, hard to believe that you show mercy and forgiveness the way that you do. Lord, your word is very clear at this matter, at this point. You love to show mercy. 
Lord, we praise you. We praise you because you love to show mercy. Even though you see all of the darkness, you still love to show mercy. And Lord, I pray now that as we go to sing a song to worship you, that we would worship you, the one who has seen everything and the one who paid the price for our sins. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.